Hi, I'm Ashley Nichols. I'm Casey Boyd-Swan. And this is the Growing Democracy Podcast, a space for citizens, experts, and advocates to create community together. Each week, we invite a guest to talk about civic engagement, governance, and how to grow our democracy. This episode is part of our series on the power of political and civic engagement. We're talking with local elected officials, public officials, and community activists to learn more about what civic and political engagement means to them and how they are involved in their communities. If you want to be involved in the podcast and get behind the scenes content about each episode, you can head over to patreon.com slash growing democracy OH. Yes, you can. And you you should. That that's scripted. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's not though, but you really should head on over to patreon.com folks so that you can participate in this political and civic engagement process. Wow. That was corny. <laughs> boom, boom. <laughs> boom, boom. I, you know, actually I have to say after this uh, episode that I feel like that, uh, one of the things that, you know, we've talked about before, but also that we're really lucky for is that we are at a university that um, has invested quite a bit of resources in political and civic engagement. Absolutely. I mean, I think it was one of the draws truly about why I was interested in coming to Kent State and being a part of Kent State. And I mean, I think it speaks to the fact that we have been able to do this work and it while it's not directly connected to a classroom activity or directly even connected to our research explicitly um, that it has been able to thrive and grow and been nurtured in a, in a, in a place like Kent state. And so, yeah, for sure. I think, you know, thinking about the role of universities in fostering civic and political engagement, I mean, a lot of different ways, whether that's, you know, by supporting things like this, like a podcast or kind of, institutional structures that help to foster it, I think are really powerful. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's easy for people to forget or to think of universities as, you know, the ivory tower where it's apart from uh, the communities in which they're situated. Uh, But, but universities, I would say many universities don't feel that way and they uh, do want to be connected and, and, and many are very connected to the communities in which they're located and are committed to uh, maintaining those connections. Yeah. And I think there's something really powerful about thinking about universities as both being very, very powerful entities. These are very significant employers, you know, they're usually relatively resource rich institutions by comparison to other places. Um, sometimes in, in my spaces often referred to as anchor institutions, right? They're not going to get up and leave. Yeah. Right. So, you know, they, they can be perceived as very powerful and that, that comes with, you know, challenges and tensions and complexities, but it also comes with a, um, the potential for investment in, connection and collaboration. And I think that can be a really powerful space to really think about, you know, the role of universities in communities yeah, um, I mean, and, and, and the role they play in fostering kind of deep civic life in the places that they're situated. Yeah. These are, you know, these are public institutions and that, and they're public spaces and the way that that provides for community needs. And I'm just thinking, right. So Kent uh, operated the vaccine clinic 
um, right. recently, and I think they're still doing it. Uh, but that, but they they offer a public space for the needs of the community uh, when those arise, and they offer those resources uh, to to kind of uh, collaborate and engage together to solve community problems. So I think our guest today uh, very much speaks to the importance of that, and I hope that everybody enjoys this episode. Dr. Dana Lawless-Andrick serves as the Associate Vice President of University Outreach and Engagement at Kent State University. The office leads town and gown relations, mission-based pipeline efforts, including the federal Upward Bound TRIO programs, LeBron James Family Foundation, Akron Public Schools Partnership, and First Star Foster Youth Academy. Prior, Dr. Lawless Andrick served as Associate Vice President of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. She teaches and studies the public role of higher education, access and opportunity, critical social research, equity, and capabilities. Dr. Lawless Andrick earned a bachelor's degree in psychology and philosophy from Mount Union, a master's of education in higher education administration, and a PhD in cultural foundations of education at Kent State. Welcome. Thank you. Excited to be here. Honored to join you. You have uh, quite the alphabet soup there uh, after your name. <laughs> so, but, and I think that, uh, you know, the, the majors and degrees that people have tell a lot about them, but I think people are also interested in the journey of how you got those uh, degrees. So can you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. It's funny because it's a, it's a very personal accomplishment and just so happened that I ended up in higher ed where that's credential matters, but you know, I ended up in college by accident, and it's very much something that's animated the story of my career. Um, I'm a first-generation uh, student. My mom, I, I share this openly, had me at 17, and I was raised by my grandparents and my mom, and all awesome, and, and I think really helped me look at the world that, you know, families and experiences come in a lot of ways and all have value. But growing up, that wasn't necessarily how you felt, and I always love learning. I love the classroom to this day. And so I was good at school, you know, in the in the, the ways that are valued in society. And so it opened some doors that I didn't realize until much later in my career, how pivotal and lucky I was, to be very honest. And because I had done well and enjoyed school, I had a counselor say, what are you thinking about? And I'm like, I don't know what I'm thinking about. You know, my mom's worked in a factory her whole life. My grandfather was an electrician. My you know, grandmother worked at the the license bureau. So it wasn't like there was this baked in notion of what comes next from what I recall, but I was always supported and, and, and promoted to do well in school. So I ended up at Mount Union by accident because it was where my counselor went and it changed my life. Um, it opened doors that I never thought possible. And it's why I'm so dedicated to access because it's a living testimony for me. And the way I ended up in my master's program is very similar. It's not like you stop being a first generation student. I graduated with my bachelor's. I, I started out in political science thinking, I wanted to change the world. I, I wonder how many students you talk to, or even for yourself, as political science scholars, right? And I realized quickly, okay, this isn't 
where I'm, I just didn't feel good. So I ended up in philosophy and psychology because there were classes that I felt good in. And again, as a first generation student, it's, it's just, it's just different. And, and I don't even think that that's just specific to first generation. I think in general, when education feels good, you enjoy it more. And so I graduated, I was very active um, in undergrad. And, and then all of a sudden, it's like, hey, we're so proud of you. I graduate, we went and had this huge dinner at Red Lobster. And then I went and like for six months was in a depression because I'm like, what's next? And had like some random job as a marketing assistant with my best friend. I mean, huh? What? (laughs) And then I had someone again, uh, open a door and say, Hey, Dana, do you want to come work with me at Kent State Salem? One of the regional campuses do student activities, and then take a couple grad courses. Okay, sure. (laughs) Sounds better than being a marketing assistant for a tech firm. And then that opened up this door and, uh, and many, many others. And again, that there's that story of access. And you know, I finished my my higher ed degree and and loved it and left and worked in Cleveland for a year and had the opportunity to come back to Kent. And this is where I've been. And the PhD was really a deeply personal journey because of, you know, my story and all that that kind of evolved. My cousin, I write about him in my PhD, two years younger than I am, wasn't valued for the skills he brought to the classroom. You know, Mm -hmm. he was really good, is really good with his hands, can tear apart anything, put it back together, but dropped out of ninth grade. And Mm -hmm. he's got the rap sheet, the, the, the statistical storyline to follow. And I just continually, you know, I'm overly simplifying it, but it, it just makes me wonder so much about the power of education and access when you really break it down. So, so that's a little bit about me. And now I'm here in this role and I've been at Kent State for almost 18 years and a variety of roles and feel very fortunate. That's fantastic. I thinking about kind of how, you know, your own experiences brought you to research, but how much your research impacts your work. I mean, it's so, it's so hard to disentangle, but could you, could you talk us through a little bit more about, about your research and and about the the idea of access and, and, and I, and if I'm understanding correctly, a lot of your work is around systemic and structural barriers to access. Can you, can you talk us through that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I started out the journey. um, It took me a little bit to figure out where I wanted to situate. And I found the Cultural Foundations of Education program at Kent State and fell in love because it blended my background in in philosophy and and sociology and culture and and all these things that impact education. And I'm like, okay, this is it. At the time, I'd been working for the better part of 12 years with our Upward Bound programs, which work with first-generation limited-income students preparing them for college. And just was curious, you know, I have students that are well into their 30s I stay in touch with, and I I loved that that work, but didn't know why some quote-unquote students made it and others didn't. And by make it, get to college, persist, graduate, the things that the program's designed to do. And it was just real random to me, you know, when I was so close to their families and knew their backgrounds. So I start out in my program and I'm reading, you know, just this powerful scholarship, Frary and Counts and Lord and, you know, just just kind of being blown away. Do we 
Du Bois. And you're just, the more I read, the more I'm like, ask, I'm asking the wrong question. And concurrent to this, I started doing, I started moving more into the diversity work too. And it always been drawn to equity work, Ben Simone, really powerful stuff around, you know, what that looks like equity, you know, and, and where are the barriers? And so it kind of coalesced for me because I was, I was realizing why am I asking the question about why my students are making it when the systems aren't designed for them to make it, you know, and the systems are baked in systemic structural issues tied to race, tied to income, tied to language that, that, directly impact their 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 opportunities. So the fact that some make it and some don't is really a crapshoot when you break it down, right? You know, we like to say we love to take that poor kid, especially the poor black kid out of, you know, New York City who made it and, and herald them because it, it gives us a pass to say, well, if that one kid can do it, then everybody can. And we don't have to look at the structures and the systems and the barriers. So I flipped my question around and I started asking, you know, what are the policies that that look at access. And one of the key pieces to that is from a federal perspective, and that's the that's where I kind of stuck my my you know flag in the ground, we've had an interesting history of very, you know, unique investments from a public standpoint into democracy and education. So I started my research around the Truman Report for higher education, mm-hmm. higher education for American democracy. Think about that language. <laughs> what? you know, mind blown. And I read this report and I'm just like, oh my goodness, can we bring this out and have everybody read it right now? But coming off the heels of World War II, when we had seen atrocities and what a lack of democracy plays out in, we as a country were going to fight with everything we had in us to make sure that never happens. So then you see this wave of federal policy, these investments, the GI Bill, right? Housing incentives. Now, big, big, big asterisk, very racialized. So it's it wasn't access for everybody um, and gendered. So they're, they're you know, I, I don't want to paint a picture as if everything was golden because it wasn't. But there was a national investment in the states to policymaking that said this was a this was a good for all of us. The stronger our education in a higher ed and K through 12, the stronger our democracy. And then I compared that to the Spellings Report, fast forward to the 2000s, where neoliberalism's in full force. And all of a sudden, not all of a sudden, but what we see is the evolution of no higher education's a private good. It's an individual good. So now we move from some of the very audacious programs like the Pell and and grant programs at the federal and state level to diminishing the amounts of those and loans, right? Uh, The whole for-profit school industry, the whole choice programs, you know, so now it's to get a degree, the amount of debt you have to take on is tremendous. Even for myself, my husband and I will pay for school till we die. Probably, you know, I don't regret that, but the conversation shift. And now all of a sudden it's, oh, college isn't for you. It's too expensive. And then we start to see income inequalities, education inequalities 
start to skyrocket. And that's where these structural barriers are tests, are at graduate and undergraduate level, their um, income, their messages, um, their the ways families are led to believe certain things, even around College Credit Plus. If you look at College Credit Plus, which is designed to increase access, the majority of those accessing it are white, female, and from middle and upper income school districts. Okay, this is a problem. So those are the pieces, you know, that that I think my research continued to help me see things. And, and really, I used, a, a, you know, I really realized I'm a critical researcher. My story is a part of who I am. I can't divorce that. And it doesn't diminish my research either. Um, and I also realized um, that there's so much more to this than, than when you look at it at face value, too. It's not as simple as, hey you go be a welder, but we really like to simplify that as if, you know, we don't value welding when that's not it at all. So some of what you're saying, or a lot of what you're saying really resonates uh, with me. And I, I kind of like to pick your brain on this. So I was reading an article, I think it was in the Washington post, but let's just say it was uh, (laughs) where they're, you know, kind of bemoaning, the rise of administration in universities and that, you know, since the 1987, the the amount of administrators has just skyrocketed and that's what's causing, you know, higher education costs balloon out of control. And I'm reading this and, and, and I realized at no point do they talk about, yeah, but since 1987, that's when universities start to really embrace this idea that, hey, you know what, we actually need to provide some support services for our students, because guess what, they can't get them other places. So I'm wondering if you can kind of talk us through maybe, I think a lot of folks probably don't recognize what a lot of administrators in higher ed do. And I wonder if you can help us understand what is it, tell us about the new office of university outreach and engagement. And why was it that this office was established in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. I think on your first point about the ballooning administration, I I don't think that that's a wrong assessment. I think what it gets tied to becomes the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, all of these things are very complex, and we like to sit ourselves in binaries, right? It's it's reflective of the polarization. It's you know you're red or you're blue. It's college or no. You know it's too much administration and not enough faculty when it's so much more complex than that. And, you know, do I think that there are um, places where higher education, especially public needs to lean in and evolve and grow and think, yes, absolutely. But the problem is we've, we've moved from the late seventies to now in this very neoliberal marketplace mentality where we commodify education at all levels. So it's not, that's why, you know, when you commodify it now, if I'm paying you 15, 20, $30,000, I want X, Y, and Z. I need X, Y, and Z. And then for the students that don't have those resources, I think you see institutions and I'm proud. I think Kent State is one of those who have a conscious and are like, okay, we're going to do what we can to invest in you to get the degree and support you with advising, with mental health, with, you know, uh, the different things you see happening here. And, and that's in part how I think my office came to be, to be quite honest with you. We have a president and a provost who believe very much in the mission and value of access 
and educational opportunity, and also the importance of a public institution within a community. And we have had that these roles from the history of Kent State, frankly. What my office does is allow us to to bring and synthesize a lot of these efforts in a, a more you know strategic and meaningful way with our mission-based pipeline works. These aren't programs designed to recruit and bolster enrollment, though they do often lead to students choosing Kent State, and that's awesome as we know we can deliver on what we say. Um, but that to my to to me, look at my story, right? Because someone said, "Hey, think about college." I did. So the mission of this with the Upper Bound Programs, the LeBron James Programs, our, our named partnership at Firestone, the Foster, um, the First Star Academy, is very much that we should be doing this as an institution. The town and gown part of the role is really recognizing and continuing to recognize that we have to be good neighbors in the communities with which we sit. You know, and I think the pandemic has has highlighted how much that is so relevant. I mean, if you would have ever asked me a year ago today that I would be on a text and first name basis with the health commissioner, what, you know, but here I am (laughs) working with the National Guard to bring testing to campus because that's what we needed to do, right? And it's this mentality of digging in, we're in it together, we're with each other and, and we value each other. And so the town and gown part, the community relations part, the mission-based pipeline work and, and bringing it together under the provost, somewhat with a dotted line, not formally, but like tied to the president's vision too, allows us to do this in a more meaningful way. And and I think it's less about administrative addition. It's more about bringing some things that existed and making more sense out of it, and also growing that footprint, I think, too. So now, in what way does your new role at Kent uh, kind of build on the work that you were, uh, as you mentioned, already doing at DEI? Yeah, certainly. I, As was shared, I had the honor of serving as the Associate VP for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, you know, with the first vice president. And now, you know, we have a new vice president, and it's in its next evolution. And what's interesting is, you know, this this was the visioning of, you know, people in 09, you know, to get this office. And now all of a sudden in 2021, everybody <laughs> realizes we need this. I'm like, Kent State was doing this a long time ago, pat our backs. Um, but, you know, I, I kind of ended up randomly, I should say random in that role, but I, 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 it's not like at any point, again, just as I said about you don't stop being a first gen student. It's not like I set out and like, I want to do this for a career and I want to do this. I've been very fortunate that, you know, doors have opened and opportunities have opened. And what I loved about my, my work in diversity and what I learned is the core of it is relationships and building those often to have very tough conversations, you know, to, to, to make explicit racialized, minoritized behavior and practices and policies. And so how do you get there in a way that doesn't alienate and shut down? Um, it's also bringing forward voices that have been marginalized. And so those skills are very center in the work I do right now, you know, listening, honoring, even when those perspectives are different, paying attention, understanding the room and, and the, the dynamic, you know, diverse perspectives that are brought forward. So I feel like I, I, 
I built on that. And to be honest, I, I joke, everything I've learned, I learned in my upward bound days, you know, we would be running like full scale residential programs with students from seven districts, a variety of backgrounds, um, identities, family situations. And I've just, I've been through it all. And so I feel like, okay, throw it at me. What do we need to do? You know, because I, you know, I, I, I do think that there's something about that, that <laughs> about how do you really truly value People. I mean, at the heart of it, it's dignity, it's humanity, and I think you. I think if you operate from that place, that helps and goes a long way. That's so powerful. Um, so one of the things that you all are doing, you kind of put it out there on on your website, um, is implementing a strategy for community engagement. So Casey and I talk about community engagement, civic engagement, political engagement all the time. That's what we sit yeah. around and talk about all the time. But I'm really curious from your perspective in this position, but also from your own kind of lived experience and kind of research and all of that that goes into it, you know, how do you see the role of, you know, community engagement in terms of the university's mission, whether it's Kent State's mission or even just a public institution in general? Yeah. And, you know, we, um, that, that part of what we do is still being developed. You know, we, we need to embark on planning. What does this unit really look like and how does it partner with some really great work, like out of community engaged learning, for example, and, and others, you know, sometimes I feel like this shifts daily based on what's happening nationally and globally. (laughs) I, At its heart, though, and this is really where I truly sit, is back to some of what I shared earlier with my research. When you see the power of what a strong working democracy can do, that's what public and civic engagement and political engagement can look like. It can be strong policy making that 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 bridges the aisles, right? And we have evidence of that. What's so random to me, when you look at the history of the GI Bill as just one example, the benefits of those opportunities in the 80s were some of the very people trying to take it away. And you're just like, okay, wait, what's not? And and to me, I hate diminishing it to like Republican and Democrat, right? Those are real pieces. Like I'm not, partisanship's a piece and a role. But I remember early, um, you know, for the 10, 12 years I was in the upper bound programs, I was active at the state and federal level. And we would go to DC once a year and visit congressional offices and Senate offices and talk about the value of education. Yeah. And, and, and I held, I remember, you know, dear old Ralph Regula from Stark County, who's since passed, bringing him to one of the sessions because Bush had cut out trio programs from his budget and, and having uh, like my family stand up and say, Lem- I, this, this impacts me. And, and he was at the time chair of appropriations and went back and changed it. That's to me what civic engagement and political engagement should be, you know, when, and I think you can get there more easily when things that aren't commod that shouldn't be commodified aren't. But because we have these these commodifications of education, of healthcare, of 
water access. I mean, come on, you know, it makes it harder because now you're having people needing to fight for things at one point were not necessarily as restricted or inaccessible. So I think it makes that kind of engagement more difficult and more politicized versus political and engagement towards policy change. Now, I mean, town and gown relations are really notoriously complicated. Uh, I mean, (laughs) I think we can all agree. I can't state's own history, right, is really uh, illustrative of that, Uh, you know, from May 4th to the promenade to recent issues around the rock uh, and and how people have been using it as a platform for all sorts of, you know, anti-Black racism. So what are your goals uh, that you see for facilitating some meaningful, sustainable town gown relations in Kent? Yeah. So I think first and foremost, I try to approach it with a focus on relationships and not issues. Mm-hmm. I think when you lead with issues or agenda or um, anything other than seeing people as people in relationships, I think that makes it difficult um, and and potentially triggering based on whatever an individual's perspective maybe, um, and what they bring to the table and the history with which they, they orient themselves. I, so what I've been trying to do since I've been in the role is just listen and learn, but also be honest and manage expectations. You know, here's what I can do. Here's my role. Um, here's what I can't do, (laughs) you know, um, and then trying to demonstrate through my actions, follow through. If I say I'm going to do something, I do it. Um, you know, what I'm learning um, is so much of some of the tension that comes has been really born out of communication issues, misunderstandings, you know, there's some real wrongs that have happened. um, And then there's been some things that have been misconstrued. And so I can't necessarily solve or go back and change the past But what I can do is say, here's what we're going to do moving forward. What's important for you? Um, I can be a a place uh, and a person who listens and brings those voices back to the university and vice versa. Um, I can recognize and honor that May 4th is a part of our history that shapes us indefinitely and will have complicated and, and multifaceted views that also make May 4th May 4th. We shouldn't try to kumbaya it, you know, because that's, because it's not, you know, and so I think managing expectations and also just being really honest and again, front ending things around humanity and dignity and listening is, is really the core of that. And, you know, I'm new still into the role and a lot of it's been remote and I've, I've got to do a little bit more in person. So, you know, I'm sure I'll make some missteps and learn and, and just continue to, you know, do the best I can. And, and I feel confident in, in the heart of who our president is and, and leadership, you know, that there is interest that's authentic in strong relationships. It's why my role was built. So that makes a big difference too, you know. Now, what about on other campuses? I mean, are there, I I mean, I'm assuming there's not the same histories, but are there similar types of tensions that exist? You know, I, I I can't really speak to that well because I'm not entrenched in those communities. Um, Mm -hmm. I had the opportunity with um, a colleague who's amazing. Um, Her name's Sarah Smith from the Stark campus and has done some really awesome things in the Canton community that, Mm -hmm. so I know through her, some of the different dynamics there. Um, And 
you know, the community relations part of the anti-racism task force, certainly we talked about a lot of various pieces across our, you know, footprint in Northeast Ohio. Um, I, I wouldn't want to presume to to sit in that, but I think it's, it is, again, a mix of, you know, value and opportunity, especially the relationships our community um, and regional campuses have is, is, is so tied and valued, but also tension. And so I think continuing to, to work on those pieces will always be a part of who we are as long as we're the type of institution we are. I, I appreciate that so much. And that the, you know, that the, the camp, the other campuses, right. So the three of us sit um, on the Kent campus, right? So it tends to be front of mind for me, but recognizing that their histories are so powerful um, and informative of how students, community, staff, faculty all interact in those spaces as well. Um, so I have a slightly broader question, though related to like every other question we've asked, so it might be repetitive. <laughs> but um, how do you define civic and political engagement and first that piece. And if you can envision this kind of radical new world um, where we have a deeply engaged populace, what would that look like? <laughs> well, you're throwing the big ones at me, aren't you? You know, I, is there, <laughs> that philosophy degree. <laughs> so I just wrapped up teaching critical social theory um, and research with a group of amazing doc students. And we joke a lot because you cover everything from Marx all the way up to, to critical, you know, race theories and just everything in between. And <laughs> this question comes up a lot. Like, what does it look like <laughs> to get to this place that, you know, oppression and the systems and the structures and the, all that stuff is, perhaps more reflective of a just world, what, a, you know, and I think that's also a loose term because that, that that's also not, you know, a, something everyone would look at the same way. You know, I, I think for me, I, I, so early on, like in 2010, when I was dipping my toe in stuff and trying to figure out what direction I want to go with my PhD. I took a class with Susan Iverson, who is a mentor and has lit, sat on my PhD committee. And it was a service learning class. And we read this article by Khan and, and Westheimer about types of civic engagement. And it has always stuck with me. And it talked about um, the, the person who donates to the food pantry and the importance of that. We need people to donate. But it's not necessarily changing root causes of hunger. It's not necessarily feeding more people. But I need to donate. And that's my comfort level. And then there's the person who organizes the food pantry and or organizes the food drive and goes maybe, if it's a spectrum, a little bit more involved in recognizing we need this, we need more events, et cetera. And then you have the folks that are out there trying to figure out the root cause of hunger, how do we get to the place where we don't have to feed people? And I think we need all of that um, meaningfully for political and civic engagement. As I, 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 I worry sometimes when things get so polarized left and right, where are the, the majority of people who maybe see themselves in parts of both spaces around some of these pieces? And I'm not talking about things around race. Let me be clear about the types of stuff I'm talking about because there are some clear lines in the sand for me. Um, but where are the spaces where this is what I can do, 
And there's a space for me to do it. And and it's not to make people feel like it's not enough. And it's not that it's not contributing, but it's a form of civic engagement. You know, um, I, I remember getting into an argument with my, my father-in-law several years ago. I, I won't name why, but we, <laughs> I, I said a comment about his vote not mattering. And he's of the Vietnam War generation. And oh my goodness, it was... I, you know, and it, his vote is his vote and it's the, the, that's his expression as a citizen. And I learned something in that moment. So I think we, we need to understand that civic and political engagement needs to have enough opportunities and space for people to, ex, to access it in multiple ways. And then understand kind of the pinnings of what democracy is. And that's part of what I think is missing too, you know, like, what does a strong democracy look like? I think it's beyond voting, but I think we've minimized it to that, but that's a big piece of it. But it's so much more than that. You know, one of the books I use um, for my research was by Mettler, Degrees of Inequality. Oh, I love this book. And she totally takes it there. Susan Mettler takes it there about, well, we don't have strong policy in place. Well, people kind of what policy, how do you know? And so I think it has to be these things for us to move in, you know, kind of the next evolvement of, of our, our nation, our country, uh, of who we are. Yeah. I, I, I love that. So I'm going to ask if there's anything else you would like to add, but I also want to say you've brought up twice now, the idea that you're a critical scholar, and then you just talked a little bit about critical race theory. And of course, front of mind for me is that you can't get away from, there is now this partisanship about critical race theory, which there is (laughs) makes me very confused because I I think most of the people that make it partisan don't understand what critical race theory is. Um, Would you mind talking to us a little bit about critical race theory and why that is important in, in, in our democracy? (laughs) Well, let me first be clear that I I identify myself as a critical scholar. I am not an expert in in CRT. I I have researched it. We we discussed it in my class. So I want to be clear on that. At the heart, and we do have some critical race scholars on campus, and that'd be a great podcast, to be honest with you. I was just thinking that. Yeah, you should, you know. At the heart of what critical scholarship is, is recognizing that there is no universal truth in the world, right? There's there's not an objective subjective. When you think about positivism and this idea that we can know something in, you know, outside of ourselves, we shape the world, we are shaped by the world, and that influences our scholarship. And then in addition to that, there are oppressive structures in all aspects of the world. The, the, the heart of critical scholarship comes out of, you know, criticizing some of what was happening um, in Europe, right? When you think about Marxism, and I know people kind of freak out or like, you want to be a communist? No, like, let's not sim- simplify this. We're talking about inequality, class struggle. We're talking about conditions of work. We're talking about lived experiences of oppressive societies, colonialism. We're talking about the fact that this country, as hard as it is to understand for some people, was built on enslaved people and enslaved Black people. And so I think if you're uncomfortable recognizing that and you're uncomfortable saying the word black and you're uncomfortable saying the word race, you see something like critical race theory and you freak out because it makes you have to face things that either you openly are choosing not to face and 
I should probably stop there. Or you really are not understanding, which I do think there's a lot of people who sit in the space of, I treat everybody the same. I see everybody the same. I don't see color because it's safe. And, and it's, it's, if I can't understand something, that's a safe place to be. You know, I remember having a conversation with my mother-in-law um, and she was really upset about the Betsy Ross flag and on the shoes and um, Ka- Kaepernick and all of that. Right. And so we were talking and I, <laughs> you know, she, she grew up in a rural area and, you know, and uh, so you kind of, you, I just, I, I was, I was really trying to challenge myself to figure out how do I build a bridge for her to see this differently. So I asked her, I said, how would you feel if Nike came out and put the Nazi symbol on shoes? And she goes, data. I mean, you know, don't say that, blah, 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 you know? And so I, I used that analogy to help her understand what some of the symbolism tied to the Betsy Rots flag and, and some of the stuff Kaepernick has stood for kneeling, et cetera, to understand do I feel like she totally got it? No. Do I feel like she got it a little bit? Yes. And I've, you know, I, I, in my class, we argued a bit and I use argue, you know, loosely um, about in agency and out of agency change, you know, advocate, you know, activism about out of system in system, you know, in, you know, and I think you need both, right. You know, I'm not necessarily going to be, doing this because that's not where I see myself, but I'll do this. And I think we need that space. That's the same with the political and civic engagement. And so if I can move my mother-in-law a little bit in that conversation, okay, that's a win. But I, I think the reason people are attacking CRT is because of a lack of understanding and because there's openly, you know, attack on, on some of these things by, you know, groups out there who are white supremacists, who are, who really feel white nationalism is, is being attacked. And, and we've got to understand that because it's a real piece of this discussion. Um, and so they go after things, but this isn't new. I mean, this happened in Arizona with Mexican heritage. I mean, you know, so this is also just this continued tension about how we really see our country and, and, and what lens with which we choose to see it. All right. Is there any words of wisdom that our listeners could get from you? Besides that, I feel, I, like those were, words. I feel like those were all the words of wisdom. Oh, no, this, you know, I, I am also an eternal optimist. I believe in people. I, I, I believe in education. I, I, I just, uh, it's powerful. I've witnessed it in my own lived experience. I, I see it when I worked with my young people, with my upper bound programs, I see it in the class that I just wrapped up. I mean, the things that we talked about Wednesday, oh, you know, it just, it's, it's, it's the space that I feel can lead to a better world. That's why I, I, I love higher education. I love K through 12. I love, I mean, I just, I love education and, and that's why I fight for, you know, educational opportunity and, and the spectrum of that, you know, it's not just access, it's, it's the success, it's the completion, it's what you gain as a result of the experience of it. And so it's not a silver bullet. I understand that. Um, But it's truly, I think our best shot. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. It's been wonderful. This went so fast. This is my first podcast. 
And I feel I was so nervous and I could talk to you all forever. I love that you're doing this. And I, I, I feel very honored to have been a guest. So thank you. Thanks for being a part of it. Thanks for listening to the Growing Democracy podcast. I'm Casey Boyd-Swan, and with me as always is my co-host Ashley Nichols. Our podcast is produced by David Yursa and edited by Jeremy Demery at Golden Ox Studio right here in Cleveland, Ohio. Our podcast is supported by the American Political Science Association and our Patreon patrons. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website, growingdemocracyoh.org. If you want to support the show, as well as get access to behind-the-scenes content, live chat, swag, featuring designs by donuts and coffee, head over to patreon.com forward slash growingdemocracyoh. Join us next time when we continue this conversation about political and civic engagement.